Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. And on this episode, I'm joined by Chris Wood, President and CEO of Trot Unlimited. Chris shares his passion for the outdoors, TU's response to COVID-19, as well as a refresher on the almost 15-year struggle to protect Bristol Bay. Before we move on to the interview, though, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It would really help us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Ascent Fly Fishing. Peter and his team are passionate about our fly fishing community, whether it's helping you be more productive on the water or making sure their team members can meet their daily needs. Let the folks at Ascent use the best science to put together a box of affordable, high-quality flies for your next outing. Visit them online today at www.ascentflyfishing.com, and if you use the code ARTICULATE10, all caps, all one word, the number 10, you can get 10% off your entire order. Now on to our interview. Well, Chris, welcome to the Articulate Fly. It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you making time for me, particularly during these trying times. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. I always ask all of my guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Oh, wow. So that's an easy one for me. Um, my earliest fishing memory is down, uh, down the Jersey Shore uh, with my father and my grandfather. We used to rent a boat. Uh, they used to rent wooden rowboats there at a place called Ernie's Boathouse for Ernie's Ernie's boats, and uh, we would go. Dad would make salami sandwiches, and uh, we would go out and fish for flounder and weak fish if we were lucky. Um, sea robins, Cape May crackers, you know, basically whatever would take a hold of the hook. And uh, I tell you what, salami sandwiches have never tasted. Uh, so good being cut with a bait knife before. That's awesome. And when did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? Uh, that happened in college. Um, I had a, uh, I didn't really grow up like, like a lot of folks who may be listeners. I, I didn't actually grow up fishing, um, notwithstanding our, our trips down the shore. Um, in the summer, I, I, you know, ours was very much a football, basketball, baseball, household uh, for my three brothers and I, and my dad was a big athlete in his day. And uh, I got to college and I really took up spin fishing in earnest for fresh water and loved it. And um, it's, I became a big brother in the big brother, little brother program. And I had a little brother that, that really wanted to get into fly fishing. You know, this is sort of a uh, big brother, little brother version of this super cool program uh, called, uh, the Mayfly project. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's this awesome project where, uh, people are using fly fishing, uh, as a mentoring tool to help foster kids. And, uh, uh, Jess Westbrook and his spouse founded that. And it's, uh, it's a really, it's an awesome experience. And anyway, many years before they came up with that cool idea, um, you know, uh, that's how I ended up getting into fly fishing because I had a little brother who, who wanted to get into it. And, uh, mom and dad bought me an Orvis green mountain series starter rod kit. And, uh, the rest is history. Yeah, that's awesome. So you were almost a fly fishing mentor before you were mentored in fly fishing as your journey progressed. Who are some of the folks that kind of helped you develop as a, as a fly angler? 
So it's, it's, it's funny you ask this because I, you know, I remember when I first became CEO of Child Unlimited, I, I, I made my obligatory visit to Orvis and I got to meet this guy, Tom Rosenbauer. Right. And so when I was starting fly fishing in 1988 or whatever, 87, I, my Bible was the Orvis guide to fly fishing. And, and, and I would read the, you know, the, it, the, the reading that book written by Tom Rosenbauer made everything seem so easy. And uh, I, I, that, that experience uh, was belied by the reality of what was happening on the stream for me. I didn't catch my first trout until probably my 10th outing. And this is the truth. I was on a zug bug. I caught the fish on a zug bug uh, that was trailing behind me as I tried to untie a knot from my fishing line, not the leader, but an, <laughs> a Gordian knot that I tied in my, that got wrapped up in my fishing line. But Tom certainly was, it's been an honor to get to meet him and get to know him uh, since I've taken this job. But some of the early ones were maybe the most important was a, a guy by the name of Bill Sargent, who uh, he was a, he worked in the, I, I worked in food services as a job in college in, in Vermont. And Bill was, uh, he was from Middlebury, Vermont, and he also worked in food services. That was his full-time job. And he kind of took me under his wing and taught me how to tie flies. Um, used to take me fishing, kind of told me some of the secret spots that only the locals knew. Um, I think, you know, 25 years after the fact or more, I can reveal that now without Bill getting in trouble. But, um, and then along the way, I've just been privileged to meet just so many uh, great people, inc including people at TU. T we have some phenomenal anglers here at Trout Unlimited, uh, people like Steve Trafton and Scott Yates, um, Kirk Dieter. There's just a whole bunch of them. Uh, you know, I, it's interesting in this job because everyone assumes I'm a good angler and I'm not. You know, I'm like the most earnest angler you'll probably ever meet, but I'm pretty average. And so I, I pick up things almost every time I fish from the people I fish with because they're, they're typically better anglers than I am. Yeah, that's really neat. No, I have that same experience, particularly the, the longer I do the articulate fly, I get to spend time with better and better anglers. And I'm all, I become very self-conscious, right, about uh, for exactly that, that exact same reason. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, and, and people always say, dude, you're crazy. And I was like, they're like, just relax and fish. And so that's a, that's a life lesson, I guess, there too. But um, so, that's right. you know, so, you know, it's really neat. I know you didn't start out at TU. You've been there a while. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey uh, from graduating at Middlebury to how you ended up being the president and CEO of Trout Unlimited? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a long story, but I won't tell you the long version. Um, I'll give you the brief version. So what happened, I, I went to Middlebury and uh, after I graduated, I was you know putting my degree to good, my liberal arts degree to good use, uh, bartending, coaching high school football and making ice cream in New Jersey where I grew up. And my buddy Mick Kelly invited me to go to Alaska with him where he was out putting his liberal arts degree to equally good use bartending, uh, in, in Homer, Alaska while living on the Homer spit, which is a, a spit of beach they have out there. And so we went out there and one day Mick invited me to take his, uh, VW rabbit and go drive down to the Kenai peninsula, uh, to fish the anchor river for salmon. And I had heard about salmon growing up, but I, I didn't know anything about their life history. And I mean, I didn't know anything about their life history. 
So <clears throat> I ended up getting to the beach around six o'clock. I, I parked on the beach where the uh, anchor entered the salt water. And, uh, you know, I made my camp and uh, had a can of, you know, Dinty Moore beef stew. And I uh, decided to, you know, knock, uh, knock off early. And I went to bed and I woke up about, I don't know, five hours later with the tide lapping into my tent. So in New Jersey, we have, you know, 18 inch tides, maybe two foot tides. They have 10 foot tides in Alaska. <laughs> so the real problem was not the wet sleeping bag. It was the fact that the VW rabbit was parked in front of the tent. Um, so the next day I didn't get out on the water until, uh, you know, late in the afternoon and three cans of gum out, uh, which I used to clean mix engine thoroughly. And I got the car started again, had it towed off the beach. And I started walking up the Anchor River at like four in the afternoon. And as I'm walking up, I began to see all these dead and dying fish, uh, you know, half in the water, half out. I remember taking my Green Mountain Series 7 weight and poking the end of uh, taking the rod tip and poking one of these fish and watching it slither off into the water, you know, more dead than alive. And I distinctly remember thinking, you know, the way that only a recent college graduate from New Jersey, who's totally clueless about the life history of salmon, I remember thinking, you know, I can't believe this. I grew up my whole life in New Jersey. I never left other than to go to college. And I get to Alaska. And clearly what had happened here was that somewhere up upstream, a train fell off a trestle and dumped a bunch of acid into the river and killed all these fish. And so I'm, you know, these fish, their jaws are deformed and they're all, uh, they've got all these spots on them. And I walked up the river a little further and there was a guy standing in a pool casting and I was watching him and he was watching me watch him. And after a while he looked over his shoulder and he says, what, what, what are you looking at? And I said to, said to him, aren't you worried about whatever killed all these fish getting on you? And he looked at me like I was crazy and he said, dude, these are salmon. This is part of the deal. They die. And I was like, uh-huh, sure they do. And so I never, to this day, I have yet to step foot in the Anchor River. Um, I went back to the VW Rabbit, which may as well have had a new engine at that point. I drove it to the Anchorage Public Library. I got a book out on salmon, and I discovered that this is true, that these, these fish have this incredible life history where they return, sometimes in the case of like the Yukon, a thousand miles to the very river they were born to have sex one time before they die. And then their bodies provide the nutrients that keep that whole system intact. And I was just completely blown away by this. And I, that night I, I wrote a letter of resignation from the ice cream factory. I found out on Monday, I didn't need to write the letter of resignation, <laughs> but I got back, I got back home and, Monday morning, I'm sitting at my dad's kitchen table in New Jersey and, uh, dad comes downstairs and he says what every father should say to a recent college graduate who is at their kitchen table at nine o'clock on a Monday morning. You know, why the hell aren't you at work? And I said, dad, I, I quit, I quit the ice cream job and I stayed coaching, but I quit the bartending job. Um, and he says, well, what are you going to do? And so as it turns out, and this is the truth that morning in the New York times above the fold, there was a picture of a guy uh, kneeling next to a lake and the caption read, 
it saddens me that I work at a lake that's named for a fish that doesn't return anymore. And that was the year that one sockeye salmon, the wags called him Lonesome Larry, made it back to Redfish Lake to spawn. This fish traveled, you know, 800 miles. It climbed 8,000 feet in elevation, never feeding once. It traversed eight separate dams, avoided thousands of predators, including us, uh, only to return to its natal, in this case, they, they spawn in lakes, its natal lake, and no other sockeye salmon made it back that year. And I said to my dad, I said, Dad, what I'm going to do is I'm going to save the salmon. And uh, I won't share with you what my father's response was. He's a very colorful man from Newark, New Jersey. Um, but that, that, that story was the beginning of, of it all. And I, I tell you the whole thing because um, I feel that way every day I go to work at Trout Unlimited. That Not that I'm going to save the salmon, but that all of us, through our collective efforts, will eventually help to save the salmon. And so anyway, what happened is I ended up going out and working for the Student Conservation Association for the U.S. Forest Service um, in Idaho. Uh, we were doing research on, on salmon watersheds, looking at the effects of development on salmon. I published a paper while I was out there uh, in the American Fisheries Society. Uh, I moved back to D.C., um, quite honestly, for, for a girl that I was dating at the time, but then uh, ended up getting a job uh, with the Bureau of Land Management. I met a guy there when I was out in Idaho. I worked with a guy named Louie who told me I needed to meet his uncle, Mike, who did policy work back in D.C. for the Forest Service or for the BLM. And so that turned out to be Mike Dombeck, who later became the director of the BLM and is the only man uh, or woman to have ever led both the BLM and then later the U.S. Forest Service. And I followed Mike over to the Forest Service, where we both worked on uh, a number of things. But the biggest thing was the so-called roadless rule, which protected 58 and a half million acres of some of the most important fish and wildlife habitat in the country. And then, um, you know, after that ended in 2000, uh, what I wanted to do was to uh, find a place where I could go to create an analog to the environmental community, except for hunters and anglers. So part of my job at the Forest Service was to take all the meetings that uh, Mike, the chief, didn't want to take. And, and that was just about all of the meetings. <laughs> and so since we were involved in this very controversial rulemaking, I met with all the regulated industries, the oil and gas people, the coal people, the timber guys. And I met with all the enviros, the Sierra Club, the Wilderness Society, NRDC, et cetera. The one constituency we never heard from were hunters and anglers. And so what I wanted to do was to try to go somewhere, find an organization uh, where we could uh, you know, create a movement similar to that of the environmental community, but instead comprised of people who hunted and fished. And, and that's essentially what we've done over here at Trout Unlimited. Yeah, that's a really great story. And I almost hate to jump to the next question because it brings us to the absolute right here and now. We're recording this at the end of March, and obviously all of us are, are being impacted by COVID-19. And, you know, uh, we had this interview scheduled for quite a while. And so as I was kind of putting my, my head around kind of what to talk about, um, you know, obviously it's timely uh, for you to share with us, you know, the actions that Trout Unlimited is taking to protect its professionals as well as its volunteers. Yeah, well, that thanks for asking that. It's, you know, it's a, it's a crazy time we're living in. We have, 
you know, last week we were one of the first to shut down all of our offices around the country. Um, we have everyone working from home. They're still working, they're still maintaining, you know, we're still productive, but we're working from home. We also canceled all of our travel. Uh, we, um, canceled all of our chapter meetings. We canceled all. So we have 400 chapters that are spread all around the country, each of whom meet at least once a month. And, and so we canceled those meetings. Spring is a big fundraising time for our chap, our chapters. They have a lot of banquets and such. We had to cancel all of those. So we're doing, we're, we're taking the steps that we need to take to try to keep our people safe. We're doing the appropriate, you know, amount of social distancing that the experts are recommending. And we're trying to do our best to make sure that our incredible staff and our awesome volunteers are all, you know, safe and protected and uh, not putting themselves at, at risk or putting other people at risk, frankly. Um, you know, a lot of our members are, are in that demographic that, uh, you know, you know, c- could really be harmed by this terrible virus. And so we're doing the best we can to keep everybody safe and, and healthy and productive. Got it. And I'll drop a, I know you've uh, put a message out on your blog and I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Do you have any specific advice? I know you sort you have, you know, you've got the, the chapters, you've got the professional staff, but you know, you've also got under your umbrella, literally individual members as anglers, as well as you, your TU businesses. Is there any specific advice you want to share uh, for those folks? You know, the advice is don't take advice from people like me. Um, you know, listen to the experts at the CDC on that blog that you're going to link to. I've got a link to the CDC page. I've been checking it every day. Um, I, I think a lot of this is common sense. Maintain, you know, what they call social distancing, keeping a distance of six feet uh, away from everyone. Um, you know, we were going to have a meeting today here with AFTA, the uh, American Fly Fishing and Tackle Association. Uh uh, they were coming back as TU and after are going to be winding up a whole big campaign together. And, um, we had to cancel that because, uh, you know, it involved travel for folks. Um, just be cautious, be careful. We're going to get past this. You know, we'll, 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 we've dealt with things that are worse than this before. We'll be fine. Uh, but everyone just needs to take it seriously and, uh, you know, not, not, um, put themselves or, or other people, frankly, which is really the important thing. Don't put other people in harm's way. You might be fine. Most of us can probably handle flu-like symptoms, um, but there are many among us who can't. And, and so I think it's a, we all have sort of a collective obligation to do the best we can to um, uh, diminish the risk of transmission of this uh, terrible virus. Yeah, really good advice, Chris. And is the TU website going to be the best place to kind of stay up to date with um, what you guys are doing, um, you know, on kind of, I guess, all fronts TU related to COVID-19? Totally, yeah. We're doing, you know, again, we're not trying to pretend that we're we're experts in this. We are not. Um, you know, don't listen to your neighbor, Harry, unless Harry happens to be an epidemiologist, <laughs> you know, about what to do. I would I would go right to the experts, go right to the, uh, you know, the, the federal state and federal agencies, the epidemiologists who, who know what they're talking about. But what you'll find a lot of on our, our website is we're using social media right now, for example, as a way to bring people together. We've got uh, tying sessions every night, um, online tying sessions where people can sort of get together and, you know, on, on Instagram or Facebook and, and, and tie together. Uh, we're, we're doing all we can to sort of, rem- we're talking about having a town hall meeting with me and 
uh, uh, Beverly Smith, who's our great volunteer uh, operations director, uh, to, to allow people to, you know, connect and, and ask questions of leadership virtually because we can't be together in person right now. Um, but yeah, the, the website tu.org is a great place to go and find, um, you know, at least a virtual community um, if we can't all be together as, as we wish we could right now. No, absolutely. And of course, I'll put a link to the website as well as to your social media feeds in the show notes. And you touched on this a little bit earlier. You know, we've seen, you know, we may not have had a pandemic in the United States before, but we've certainly had disruptions like September 11th and the Great Recession. You know, how do you, you know, obviously it's important to take care of yourself, take care of your family, take care of your community. How do you juggle that with keeping people focused on TU's cold water conservation mission? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. I mean, um, you know, it's, I think it would be, it would be easy um, to say, you know, trout fishing, even conservation, you know, when I weigh the significance of, you know, COVID-19 versus TU's mission, eh, not so significant to you. And, you know, I think that's exactly the wrong reaction because the fact is that uh, when you right now we're you know we're not doing a lot of our field operations we're not having a lot of the community building events that we would typically be doing at this time of year but when you think about well we will though that's I think that's just a little ways off for us um, until the social distancing is eased but when you think about the efforts that we make to protect rivers and streams and the lands that surround them and last year we protected about. 400, 500 miles of rivers and stream around the country. That's not simply making fishing better for people. Um, it's actually, it's demonstrating that we're not a desperate people, that, um, that we have enough wisdom to protect and leave behind for our kids and their kids, you know, a significant chunk of God's creation. When we go out and reconnect and restore these river systems, we're not simply making it easier for fish to move in response to a changing climate. Uh, we're actually protecting downstream communities from the effects of flooding by allowing rivers to get up and into their floodplains. Uh, when we do all that restoration work that we do, and last year we did over a thousand miles of stream and river restoration around the country, we're creating literally thousands of high paying family wage jobs. So I think, you know, when you're in a crisis like this, it's easy to look at Trout Unlimited as something that's incidental. Uh, or not vital. And I actually think it's just the opposite. Um, when I think about the work that we do to get kids into the out of doors or to help veterans to heal uh, through fly fishing and through time on the water, and most importantly, by becoming a part of our chapter network, we're building community. And I think that work, that work of, uh, of helping to recover the natural resilience of our rivers and streams and building community across the nation it's, it's probably some of the most important work that we could be doing as a, as a country right now. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really true. And, and can you, you know, obviously we're still digesting this and we're probably in about the third or fourth inning of this entire process. You know, do you have yeah. any, do you have any feel for, you, you know, you know, I think you pretty clearly stated the challenge and the importance of, I guess what I would say, maintaining an appropriate level of focus. Uh, on the mission, do you have a feel for kind of how COVID-19 is going to impact TU on a short-term basis and on a long-term basis with respect to its mission? So, you know, we're uh, right now, my focus is keeping our volunteers safe, keeping our employees whole, 
You know, we've we've basically told our employees to take sick leave if they have COVID-19 related reasons for not working, whether that's uh, they're sick, God forbid, or a loved one is sick, God forbid, or a child is home from school, more likely, because <laughs> all the schools are closed. Um, so they're all charging the sick leave. And if even if they don't have that leave accumulated, we're going to we're going to take care of them. And then we will, um, you know, we're going to lean on some of these bills that Congress is passing if this uh, continues on into the later spring and in the summer. The good news is that, you know, nowadays um, with the, you know, I mean, we all sort of curse technology as a, as a, a bane, right? But it's also a boon, right? I mean, it's, it's not as difficult uh, to work remotely and I'm not underestimating how difficult it is for some people, especially those who are taking care of people who are sick or small, have small children. But technology allows us to be more remote. And um, it's interesting, years ago, we made a decision as an organization that we were going to maintain a relatively small headquarters office. So we only have like 25 people back in our headquarters office in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, but we have another 250 that are spread all around the country most of whom are working from uh, remote offices. So, you know, hopefully the level of productivity will continue, but it's just important to remember that the, the, the first and most important priority is to just make sure you stay healthy and to keep those around you healthy by making smart decisions about social distancing. Wash your hands a lot, you know, listen to what all the experts say, uh, and we'll get through this. We'll weather the storm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one last COVID-19 question, and then we'll move on to something um, different, uh, interesting, uh, but different. Um, you know, it's early on, but are you kind of seeing, you know, you've mentioned, like, for example, you're doing nightly tying sessions and you may have a virtual town hall meeting. Um, any thoughts about, as you see, kind of opportunities growing out of COVID-19 about how the angling community can change the way that it interacts with, uh, with its members and, you know, interact more effectively and get better connection or different connection? It's a great, it's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, using technology to connect. Uh, it's interesting. we most of us have been cursing technology is, is, is disconnecting us, right, from families, from conversations, from, uh, you know, uh, things that uh, bring people together, right, because technology can get in the way of those stupid little iPhones or computers. Um, well, now I think, you know, we have an opportunity to, to really practice how technology can uh, actually bring us together, help connect us. And so we'll take, we'll take, uh, we'll take the lessons from that. You know, I probably travel half time and I've had to cancel a number of trips that I otherwise would have been on right now. And, you know, as I think about it now, some of those, I wish I really could have gone to, you know, the Orvis rendezvous in Roanoke, Virginia was canceled and I was going to be their conservation speaker. I would have loved to have done that. There's a small chapter in West Virginia, the Salfont chapter that is really focused on, uh, you know, Salfont meaning Savalinus fontanalis brook trout, the Latin name for brook trout. Um, they're really focused on conservation and recovering brook trout. And I was going to be their banquet speaker. I would have loved to have been with them, but you know, there's a lot we can do on the phone. There's a lot we can do through video conferencing. There's a lot we can do through Microsoft teams or Skype or whatever. So, you know, I think we're going to take a lot of lessons from that. And, um, you know, we'll, I think we'll come out of this fine. Uh, even if we, uh, you know, maybe use technology a little bit more to our advantage in terms of creating community. 
Yeah, it's funny you say that because I I have similar and I've had similar conversations around technology before because I'm I I love it and like the flexibility that it gives you. But I always tell people that you know you have to make a really deliberate decision and it's hard to do, right? It's like eating Doritos uh, about whether you're going to let the technology, <laughs> right? Like whether you're going to let the technology, you know, serve you or enslave you. And I, I like the example I use with my teenage boys. I always say, you know, look, it's not inherently bad. It's like a shovel. I can either use it to dig a hole and do something constructive or I can hit someone on the head. And that's my choice. Right. I love that's great. That's a great analogy. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's, it's been very interesting to see people kind of wrestle with the technology component and, um, you know, as we kind of move on, one of the things that I'm working on at the Articulate Fly is a series of interviews with stakeholders in the Bristol Bay Area to help people hear the stories. Because, you know, as you and I have talked about offline, uh, TU has been involved in uh, the projects to protect Bristol Bay for well over a decade. And uh, I think oh, yeah. I think we're entering our 15th year. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so part of it is yeah. how, you know, how do you move past email blasts? Uh, and it's not, you know, it's not in Kansas, so it's not like everybody has an equal opportunity to get there. And, and so I thought it would be helpful to kind of lay the groundwork for some of that upcoming work for you to help us kind of reset the baseline at a very basic level. You know, where is Bristol Bay and, you know, why are groups like TU interested in what happens there? Yeah, that's great. I'm happy to do that, Marv. So it's, you know, Bristol Bay is in southwest Alaska. It's a landscape that's about the size of Ohio, um, except only 7,000 people live there. It's a completely undeveloped, pristine landscape. And um, there are seven rivers that drain into Bristol Bay itself. And that two of them are called the Quijack and the Nushagak. And the Nushagak is among the finest producers of Chinook or King Salmon in the world. And the Quijack every year uh, produces about half of all of the world's wild sockeye salmon. Let me say that again. One river produces half of all of the world's wild sockeye salmon. It is obscene how productive this river is, these rivers are. And it is precisely in the headwaters of those two rivers that a Canadian mining company has proposed to build a massive open pit gold, silver, and copper mine. Um, it would require uh, a earthen tailings uh, dam to hold back the toxic tailings that would be created by the mine. Uh, and don't forget that this is in a highly seismically active area. Uh, it is, if you could think of a, the worst place to put a mine than Bristol Bay, in fact, I would challenge any of your listeners to name one place other than maybe the Vatican that would be worse to build this kind of a mine than Bristol Bay. It is, it is an obscenely uh, bad idea. It is, it is an obscenely greedy idea. And, and it is, uh, the other thing I should mention is that it's probably the finest native rainbow trout fishery in the world. Uh, it's a place where you can catch 30 inch rainbows, not steelhead. These are rainbows that move out of Lake Iliamna and follow the salmon. Um, it's just, it's like no place on earth. And so we have been, Hard at work working with the um, Alaska Native villagers up there who are adamantly opposed to this mine, uh, working with the uh, Native corporations, working with the commercial fishermen. Uh, the outdoor industry has been fantastic on this issue. They've been unified in their opposition to the mine. And, you know, it's going to, we thought we had it beaten in 2016. EPA had gone through a lengthy process that would have 
resulted in the protection of Bristol Bay, but uh, there was an election and uh, the Trump administration essentially chose to settle a lawsuit uh, in, 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 in favor of the proponents of the mine and they allowed the permitting process to proceed. And, uh, you know, we are in the midst of, we, we litigated uh, a step that the administration took to lift uh, the uh, Obama administration's proposed protections. We're in the midst of that litigation right now. We feel good about our chances. And in the meantime, the permitting process goes on. And uh, we and our allies are working very hard to make sure that Bristol Bay, uh, the pebble mine, is in fact never permitted. Got it. And can you help uh, put a little bit, I guess, of detail kind of around, you know, we've got the high level concern, but maybe talk us through kind of what's at risk uh, from an economic perspective, uh, from an ecological perspective and a cultural perspective, if the mine moves forward? Yeah. So these, these, these salmon fisheries in particular have been uh, counted on for a millennia by the Alaska native villagers up there. They're wholly dependent on this resource. Um, it's, but it's not just a subsistence resource. I mean, it's a, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar fishery that provides 17,000 jobs every year. Um, and, and, and all we have to do to maintain that kind of economic impact in that region is have the wisdom to leave it the hell alone. Um, it's, it's really, it, the salmon resource could not be more culturally, economically, or socially significant in that area. And, and it's not just to that area. As I pointed out, you're talking about Nearly half of all the world's wild sockeye salmon are coming from the Quijack. So it's, this isn't just about the effects on those Alaska Native villages or even on Southwest Alaska. This is a this is a world class resource, and uh, and it's important that everybody take note. And 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 uh, you know you can go to tu.org or standup.tu.org. And we make it easy for you to make your voice heard there by letting your uh, elected leaders know, letting the state of Alaska know that um, uh, Bristol Bay is the wrong place to build a massive open pit mine. Yeah, and I know, and you touched on this briefly uh, with your story um, about getting flooded out of your tent. You know, uh, I think what a lot of people don't understand from an ecological perspective is it's not really just fishing because those salmon, when they return and die, literally are the nutrient conveyor belt for the entire ecosystem in those headwaters. That's it. That's exactly right. They are they are bringing back the nutrients that the entire system, the bears, the eagles. The animals, everything depends on, and um, but 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 it's especially the people. <laughs> it's, it's it's the people too, and and that's what that's what makes this you know so challenging. There was there most of the conservation that's happened in the history of the state of Alaska. It's it's fairly brief history, um, has been forced on it by the outside, by the U.S. Congress typically or historically, and uh, what's energizing and motivating about what's happening in Bristol Bay today is that this campaign to save Bristol Bay, it is, it is built in, made in, and led by Native Alaskans. And that's why ultimately I think we're going to prevail because woe to the politician who isn't willing to listen to the will of the people. And the will of the people in the state of Alaska is pretty darn clear. They don't want that stinking mind built there. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And I wanted to kind of shift focus just a little bit to kind of TU's uh, collaborative process. So I know, you know, traditionally TU has worked really hard uh, to have a process where all stakeholders are involved and works really hard not to um, be viewed as anti-development. And, and I was curious, you know, we can talk a little bit about about Pebble Mine and Bristol Bay, but, you know, I thought it would be interesting for our listeners to hear about some of the win-win outcomes you've been able to achieve on other kind of mineral and timber and water projects that TU has been involved with. Oh, it's, it's too many to mention. It's a way, it's our way of doing business. We, we actually have a term for it. We call it collaborative stewardship. So, you know, um, I mentioned cutting my teeth on the, on the uh, roadless rule, which protected at the Forest Service. We ended up protecting 58.5 million acres, and that was awesome. Uh, but make no mistake about it, you know, that was something we kind of drove that through. It wasn't very – there was a ton of public input, but it, it wasn't exactly all that collaborative in the grand scheme of things. Um, a few years after that, when President uh, Bush was elected – uh, the Bush administration tried to get, they decided to give the states the option of rewriting that roadless rule. Um, the way they saw fit. And so I became part of a group, about, it was about 13 of us, I think, helping the state of Idaho to come up with a roadless rule. And when we first started, uh, we were at each other's throats. You know, these are, these are sort of competing interests. There's the livestock guys were there, the, also, vehicle people were there, the timber people, the counties, et cetera. And um, a strange thing happened over a period of like two years. You know, we started, we started celebrating the births of each other's children. I remember when my second child, uh, uh, Casey, was born. Uh, Jim Riley, who was one of the, t- he was the timber representative. He showed up at our house one night with a logging truck for Casey with a note that said, Hey, hey, it was like a small, like a you know, model logging truck with logs on the back. And he said, Hey, Casey, uh, because I know your dad won't show you, um, if you want to really drive a logging truck someday and be a real man, you know, come call, give me a call. And, you know, we started having dinner with one another and we became friends over time. And I began to understand what the needs of the timber industry were. And they began to understand why a fish and wildlife advocate cared so much about protecting those backcountry areas. And we began to advocate for one another. And so we ended up creating a different rule in the state of Idaho. Idaho has its own roadless rule. It protects 8.9 million acres. And I would wager that it's even stronger than the rule that we, protect, that we did in 2001. In 2009, they did the Idaho rule. 2001, we did the big roadless rule. And I think the Idaho rule is stronger. And you tell me which rule is going to last longer the one that the people of Idaho participated in developing or the one that the forest service uh, dropped on everybody from, you know, independence Avenue in Washington, DC. (laughs) And that's basically the model that we employ around the country. We work with mining companies to clean up abandoned mines. Uh, We work with the agricultural community to come up with innovative ways to ensure that irrigators can get their water in a way that doesn't, uh, you know, dry up Western rivers. Uh, that that we we are constantly looking for collaborative solutions. Um, we basically call it applying common sense to common problems for the common good. Yeah, it's really interesting too because that is a very labor intensive and emotionally uh, expensive approach uh, to get things done, right? But it's effective. Well, yeah, I mean it's it, it, it's not just effective; it's durable. 
right? I mean, it, it is it is a truism that the conservation that is most local is going to be the most durable. And and that's what we try to do. There's a lot of environmental groups that try to parachute, you know, in from the coastal cities and tell people in rural America what to do. What we do is we hire people from rural America who understand the needs of farmers and irrigators and ranchers, timber companies, et cetera. And then within that, the, con- the construct of maintaining healthy ecosystems and recovering healthy ecosystems, we try to figure out how to produce the goods and services that those people are looking for. And you know what? Generally, we can do it. Generally, we can do it. Now, there's going to be times when, you know, you, you, you get a, you know, some greed heads who want to go and do a stupid thing like build a mine in the headwaters of uh, Bristol Bay or, or, or build a, a, a mine in the headwaters of uh, the Smith in Montana. And, you know, collaborations can only go so far, right? You know, we tried to talk to those guys. We tried to work with them. Uh, in Mo- in Montana, we didn't get anywhere. So you know, you know, we're we're looking at all of our options. You know, including litigation. But uh, our typical course of action is not to litigate. We like to try to work problems out with people. Got it. And is uh, I guess kind of the disconnect that you're having on the Smith River issue similar to your experience with the Pebble Mine Partnership? Is that kind of why your uh, collaborative stewardship approach is just not getting traction with them? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, in, in some cases we just have these, you know, uh, you know, our mining laws in this country are, are, are fairly antiquated. And, you know, uh, just because someone has the, um, the legal right to, you know, access an area for minerals, it doesn't mean it's the, the smart thing to do. Um, and, you know, we'll never we'll never surprise anyone with litigation. They'll have been, if, if you ever read about Child Unlimited uh, litigating an issue, you can be certain there have been many, many hours, many days of conversation that preceded that litigation where we essentially couldn't come to a consensus. Uh, but I do think that generally that's the better way to go. The more support that we can build for conservation, uh, particularly in rural communities, the more durable conservation will be over time. And, and that's the name of the game. Got it. And, you know, kind of uh, amplifying that durability concept and being local, you know, why should people that don't live in Alaska be interested, involved in the Bristol Bay process? Well, uh, you know, again, because there's really no place on earth like it. You know, it's like some of the founders of of, uh, the original authors of the uh, Wilderness Act said, you know, wilderness matters even if you never once step foot in it. You know, wilderness is quite literally the, you know, it's the, uh, it's the anvil upon which the character of this nation was hammered out as we migrated westward. And, and it's important that we know that there are places like Bristol Bay that we have had the wisdom to just leave the hell alone. I mean, it's, think about this for a second. We have spent 17 or $18 billion to try to recover Columbia and Snake River salmon. 17 to $8 billion, $18 billion. It is the single least successful restoration in the history of mankind. And all we have to do to keep that fish factory that is Bristol Bay intact is leave it alone. Wow. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, it, when you were talking, it made me think about the first time I drove through uh, Yellowstone from Gardner and saw the waterfall and um, sort of had that feeling that, you know, maybe we were getting some things right in this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, you, we've done, look, to be, clear, to be clear, we've done a lot of good in this country, right? The network of public lands that we have in this country are the envy of the world. We have some, notwithstanding some recent diminishments um, of the water of our water quality regulations. We have some of the best environmental laws and most protective environmental laws in the country. We have done a lot right as a nation. We have a lot to be proud of, but, you know, as the nation continues to uh, urbanize and as, you know, in 20 years, the demographers are projecting that, you know, we're going to be a majority minority country. It's just more important than ever that we're getting out into rural communities, into urban communities, that we're working with people of color, that we're expanding the tent for conservation, that we're broadening the base of people who care about these issues that we're talking about. Because if we don't do that, if that next generation coming along, brown, yellow, green, white, whatever color they are, if they don't care about the stuff that we've done, they'll let those roadless areas go. They'll let the Wilderness Act be compromised. They'll let water quality laws be weakened. And that would be a travesty. Yeah. And, and interesting too, right? Because even though we've talked about the Bristol Bay Pebble Mine process going on for, you know, almost 15 years, you know, we're sort of at an inflection point in 2020. Can you share with our listeners why 2020 is going to be such an important year for Bristol Bay? Well, I mean, you know, there's, uh, there's that permit that I mentioned. They have to get a permit uh, from the Corps of Engineers to allow the uh, mine plan to to go forward, and there's an election. <laughs> you know, um, it was because of an election that uh, the proposed protections from the EPA were lifted, and um, you know, in the, this election offers tremendous opportunity, and it offers opportunity for two reasons. Number one, it could be that there's a new administration that our job is to convince they should take a different approach, a more protective approach of Bristol Bay, or our job is to help this administration realize it is folly. It is a fool's errand to build this mine in the headwaters of Bristol Bay, to industrialize that landscape and forever ruin it would be just a fool's errand. And our job is to co- convince this administration of that and to help them become heroes among sportsmen and women by putting Bristol Bay off limits to development. There's a lot of people who want to say, oh, the Republicans took over and they did the wrong thing right away. And that's just wrongheaded. And it's lazy. It's lazy thinking. Our job as conservation advocates, whether you pull the D bar or the R bar, is to make conservation bipartisan and to help this administration understand that sportsmen and women, that outdoor retailers all over the country will celebrate them if they do the right thing with Bristol Bay. That's the job we have in front of us. And we have between now and 2020 to do so. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of wood to chop uh, for sure. Can you help? <laughs> right? Um, can you kind of help? You know, I, we don't want to need to do the whole fifteen years. So I kind of thought as I was preparing for this interview, could you kind of walk our listeners through? Um, uh, you know, everything that's kind of transpired. I guess my understanding is in late twenty seventeen, uh, Pebble Pebble Mine Partnership applied for their first federal permit, kind of as a result of this change in uh, political posture. Can you kind of walk folks through kind of you know what has happened since they filed that initial permit uh, to kind of crystallize for them kind of where we are today? Yeah. So they, after fifteen years, mind you, they finally filed their permit. 
Uh, and it was only because the um, part of that legal settlement that I mentioned uh, said they had to get a permit in by a certain period of time. They still don't have an investor uh, for the mine. I mean, it would require a massive investment of capital to build this mine, and they don't have that investor right now. Uh, but they, they're in a, uh, the 40, what they call a 404C permitting process, which means they have to get a, um, a, a, a permit uh, from the Corps of Engineers and the EPA. Uh, their their uh, EIS process had, has been delayed, I believe. Uh, but to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know exactly where we stand in the administrative proceedings at this point. Um, but I know that there's a, you know, a fairly good distance to go before they can actually file their, their permit. Got it. And just for our listeners, EIS, I think, is what the Army Corps Engineers Environmental Impact Statement? I'm sorry about that. Yes, of course. The, that's the underlying analysis that they will use to justify their permit. They came up with a draft environmental impact statement, uh, and you know, which, which the EPA of this administration filed a hundred and something pages of negative comments. And the Fish and Wildlife Service also did a great job, and they raised a ton of objections so they've, they've got a big job in front of them to demonstrate that um, they can do this in a way that doesn't damage that fishery. Even, even with a, a favorable political tailwind at this moment, um, they still have a really big job in front of them. Got it. And, you know, you've mentioned uh, that they're, you know, Alaskans are opposed and, you know, Americans outside of Alaska are opposed. Um, can you kind of give us a little bit more detail around the coalition that TU has helped assemble um, to speak on behalf of Bristol Bay? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really diverse and varied coalition, and it starts with the people who live in those, uh, you know, uh, the, those Brist- the Bristol Bay villages up there, uh, the Alaska Native villages, um, places like King Salmon and Igiagig, and uh, all of those people who have for hundreds of years relied on those fish coming back. Um, it starts with them. It expands out to uh, you know, the multi-billion dollar commercial fishing industry, which provides 17,000 jobs every year um, fishing those salmon in, in Bristol Bay. And then uh, the network, networks extend to the whole sort of people who rely on that landscape for outdoor pursuits, whether they're lodge owners or uh, other, you know, outdoor related industries. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the associations like AFTA, the American Fly Fishing Tackle Association, and um, other industry, outdoor industry groups like Recreation, like uh, Patagonia and Orvis, and um, some of these other companies have been phenomenal in terms of their support of stopping uh, uh, the pebble mine. Uh, the network is wide and it's deep. I think, you know, the risk we have is that we're in the 15th year of this. I mean, it's, you can only hold people's attention for so long. Um, but you know, conservation is a long game and there are some landscapes that are worth fighting a long time for. And Bristol Bay is one of them. Yeah. And if you want to take action and you live in Alaska, what can you do? So as I mentioned earlier, you can go to standup.tu.org and there is a way it, it, it reads where you're you know, accessing the internet from, and it will give you all of your local officials that you can contact. Um, you know, if you know the governor, call the governor personally. If you know the president of the United States or know someone who knows them, call the president. <laughs> but I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I'm kind of joking, but a little bit, but 
this is an endless pressure, endlessly applied deal. And, uh, you know, we can't give up the fight just because it's taken a long time. This is one that it's worth our very last breath. Got it. And is that the same place that you would send uh, folks that live outside uh, of Alaska and the other 49 states yep. if they want to yep. take action? Yep. Okay. Yep. It's a one, one-stop shop. Got it. Well, I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. And, you know, as this thing progressive, progresses, uh, what's the best place for people to stay up to date with what's going on in Bristol Bay? Yeah, you know, access our website, uh, tu.org. We've got all kinds of information up there. And on a more positive note, um, I've seen some of your social media posts. Uh, can you share some of your uh, recent social distancing experiences on the water? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble with this one. So uh, I, I love to fish out of uh, uh, on the Potomac River, and uh, we have a tremendous a shad run that starts around now and uh, following the shad are really big stripers <laughs> that come up and eat the shad. They're coming up from the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, I have been practicing appropriate forms of social distancing, staying at least six feet away from friends uh, while fishing in the morning for some of these big stripers and shad. And then we also often catch like a giant blue catfish or uh, walleye or, or smallmouth. And, uh, you know, it's a great, it's a great way to start the morning. Um, I would frankly be doing it even if I wasn't, uh, practicing social distancing. My practice this time of the year is to get out on the Potomac for a couple hours at daybreak. And then I'm typically in the office before nine. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've been chasing big stripers. Well, that's great. Any other silver linings you want to share with folks in these really unusual times we're in? I mean, just the opportunity to be you know, close to the people you love. Right. I mean, that's, you know, there's no, there is no silver lining. I said this the other day to, you know, the TU family, there's no silver lining to this tragedy. There really isn't one, but if there was, it would be that we have more time to spend uh, with our kids, with our spouses, with our loved ones, um, you know, and, and, and more time to connect to them. Yeah. I've started lifting weights with my eighth grader in the morning. Uh, and I will tell you, he is a beast. He said, uh, he, he said to my wife the other day, uh, you know, dad's lost a lot of strength in the past two years, <laughs> but we lift every morning and, uh, you know, it's, we do that in the basement of the house. And so far everybody's, everybody's, uh, healthy. And, um, like, like with all your listeners, I hope everybody stays that way. Yeah, that's good stuff. Nothing quite like the honesty of a teenager, for sure. Um, no, and he didn't tell me. He told my spouse, which is probably wise. Yes. So before I let you hop, why don't you let folks know where they can find TU on the internet and learn more about the organization and get involved? Uh, you uh, Go to www.tu.org, and uh, we've got a lot of great content up there now. You can, if, you, if you're a fly fisher, please become a member of Trout Unlimited. I uh, I don't want to have to shame you into doing this, but it's a great organization. We do more to make fishing better than any other organization in the country. And if you go to tu.org, you'll see all kinds of cool uh, social media content, blogs, et cetera, that you can check out. There's videos, uh, information. I'm looking at the front page right now on the fight over the Smith mine. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a piece here on how to avoid a collision loop when you're spay casting. Uh, inst- because the NCAA was canceled, we've got a 
um, a, a, a fly tying showdown going on right now, sort of like bracketology, just involving fly tying. Um, so check it out. It's, it's chock full of good content. Uh, and I, I think your, your listeners will enjoy it. That's great. And Chris, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this afternoon. Yeah, man, this is truly my pleasure. Thanks again. Okay, talk to you soon. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at Ascent Fly Fishing. Remember to check them out at www.ascentflyfishing.com. And if you use the code ARTICULATE10, all caps, all one word, the number 10, you'll get 10% off of your order. Stay safe out there. Tight lines, everybody.